Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And today, we are, we're pretty excited because both of us are fans of The Expanse, which is a show on sci-fi. It speaks to all of Robert and my interests. And man, we both watched the first season, really enjoyed it. So we got the opportunity to work together with them and do an episode on their universe, basically, taking a look at war and what is the cause of war in human history, but also looking toward the future and basically saying, what's it going to look like? Yeah. What would interplanetary war be like? Uh, yeah, this is an awesome opportunity. Uh, I was already a fan of the show. And it was actually reading the first book by James S.A. Corey uh, when the opportunity presented itself. And we yeah. said, yeah, because we've done this sort of thing before w- without any kind of advertising support for properties such as Dune. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, let's see, what else? The we Strain. The, yeah, and the Ant-Man one. The Ant-Man. Yeah, none of those people uh, worked together with us. But we did it because we were fans. And I think... I think we might have done something like this eventually this year because once I finally got a chance to watch it on Amazon Prime, I just fell in love with this show. It is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's a very well put together show. Uh, I I would say the, the best pure science fiction show on television right now. Yeah. So as Robert mentioned, it's based on a series of novels by James S.A. Corey. Now, that's a pen name, actually, for Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. They serve as writers and producers on the show as well. And the first uh, season of the show is based on the book that Robert mentioned, Leviathan Wakes. And that book was nominated for both a Hugo Award and a Locus Award. We're going to try not to really spoil the show for you at all if you haven't seen it. We're going to be mainly talking about the the mythos that it exists in, right? Like mm-hmm. the universe that they've built for this, this show and the series of novels. Um, the real basic plot, and this isn't really getting you much past, like I would say the first episode, is that it's uh, an ensemble of characters that are scattered around the solar system. They're trying to unravel a conspiracy that threatens to begin a war between Earth, Mars, and uh, colonies that are within the asteroid belt. Yeah, and the the really cool thing to keep in mind, and certainly something we're going to discuss at length here, is that all of this is crafted with with science in the forefront. Uh, the, the, The authors and the showrunners put a lot of effort into making sure that everything lines up not only with our entertainment expectations and our our political intrigue uh, fascination, but but just like what what is our current understanding of science and our current understanding of the universe? What kind of a, a future does that possibly present for us? And to that end, another thing we're really excited about is that we are going to have an interview at the end of this episode with the executive producer on The Expanse, Nareen Shankar. He's also one of the show's writers. He's their science advisor as well. He has a background in engineering and physics. And so we're going to ask him questions about how the show treats the realities of space, because that really is, I think it's one of the selling points for me is that space is as much a character as any of the other characters. And it's not just a setting, right? Yeah. Space is dangerous and big and hostile uh, in this show, as it should be. So before we get into the meat of this show, we want to establish, you know, what this episode isn't going to be, because we don't want you to be, you know, uh, disappointed in what we cover and what we don't. This is a huge topic. This isn't going to be us looking at military science, really, or delving into too much about future weapons technology. We talk a little bit about that, but for the most part, we're sticking to uh, what 
causes war, what motivates war, and and really the ultimate end goal of the studies like this, which have been going on for a long time, is how to keep peace. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at past models of war and how they apply in trying to figure out the future of war. Uh, but yeah, we're not going to do a detailed breakdown of individual weapon systems, though we, of course, have covered some of those in the past and may cover them in the future, such as our uh, episode from, I believe, the past year yeah. uh, about the rods from gods, the kinetic weapons uh, uh, system proposal. Yeah, and that came up independently in the research. It wasn't something that like mm-hmm. we were like, well, we're familiar with this. We'll bring this in. It actually yeah. is something that a lot of people who speculate on what future warfare is going to look like once we're out in space kinetic weapons immediately came up. So yeah. we'll, we'll touch on that again too. And if you're and if, and also one thing, this, this podcast is not going to be is, you know, we're going to talk about the expanse a little bit in it, but we're going to talk at, at length about um, uh, j- just the future of war and what war is in general. So if you're not into the expanse, if you're, if you're, you're just across the board, not interested, well, fear not because we're going to, we're going to talk about uh, very grounded issues here. Okay. So why don't we get into it? And then what we'll do is basically as we go along and we're talking about these various theoretical examples or historical examples, we'll maybe apply it to the expanse. But again, we're, we're not going to be very spoilery about the show in terms of like things that happen in the plot or with the characters. It's just mainly going to be about like what the setup is for the, the universe they're in. What it's like 200 years in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, I guess we should. Do you want to mention any of the characters before we move on or? Yeah. Well, I I think more so than the characters, what I'd mention is just like the three factions, I suppose. And so set that up for people, which is that earth is earth still exists. There's a human population on it. It's a single planetary government though, from what we can United Nations uh, governed planet. Yeah. And then Mars has broken off from earth. Mars is populated by human colonists. Uh, but they have a more technologically advanced colony, I guess. So they have like a pretty uh, intensely powerful military. They have like stealth ships, things like that. Uh, and that they, Mars and Earth are kind of teetering on the brink of a, it's like a cold war, basically. And then the last faction is the asteroid belt. Uh, they refer to themselves as belters. Uh, and that basically serves as like mini colonies scattered throughout the asteroid belt of basically blue collar workers who are out there mining resources like air and water. In some cases, it's like ice, like they're they're mining ice in outer space so that they can then bring it back and turn it into water, basically for the survivability of everybody, whether they're on Mars or an asteroid belt. Although Earth pretty much has access to all of the resources we still have. Yeah, I mean, if you play fast and loose with the uh, the parallels, you can basically look at uh, at Earth. Earth is, uh, is, is, a, is a European planet. Mars is the new world. And then the asteroid belt is just the, the outskirts, the, the wilds, yeah. the, the, the utter frontier. And, and, and there's a, and there's a cultural splintering that has occurred really across all three domains. Right. Yeah. And, and that, the other thing too, I forgot to mention is that the belt is governed by Earth technically. I think like mm-hmm. they have oversight, but there's also like, uh, corruption within the belts government system. And then also, uh, what would you call it? Like a, a grassroots insurgency happening. Yeah. The OPC, yeah. uh, quasi terrorist or outright terrorist organization, depending on, on how you look at it, because there's a, a, a lot, there's a, a lot of disenfranchisement that goes on in the belts in, in the expanse. The, right. The belters, uh, don't seem to have the same rights. Um, uh, yeah, the, it's a major plot point. 
All right. So at this point, let's go ahead and get into the first big question here. What is war? What is war itself as a thing that humans do, that humans, most humans hate and despise and fear, and yet we absolutely have not stopped doing it? Yeah, we conduct it constantly. And, you know, I had no idea going into this research. I mean, I had some idea, but but not how deep it goes. I mean, there are entire... Uh, departments of study devoted to this. Mm -hmm. And so if you're out there listening and you have some familiarity with this, you may go, well, why didn't you mention this particular theoretical concept about war? You know, uh, it's because we really, we would have to do an entire podcast that's just about for, for years. (laughs) It's just about this topic in order to cover everything. So we're going to try to boil it down to some of the major categories of, of what is war and what causes it. Going to read three quick quotes here. That that uh, that I feel set the stage. Uh, the first one comes from uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian or the Evening Redness in the West. And this is these are the words of uh, Judge Holden, who is a major character in that book, uh, a quasi supernatural uh, villain. He says it makes no difference what men think of war. War endures as well. Ask men what they think of stone. War was always here before man was war waited for him. The ultimate trade awaiting its ultimate practitioner. That is the way it was and will be that way and not some other way. And then in uh, Daniel Quinn's uh, Ishmael, an adventurer of the mind and spirit, uh, Ishmael, who's a talking gorilla in the book, if you're not familiar with it, uh, says the following. My name is Ishmael. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is <laughs> this law defines the limits of competition in the community of life. You may compete to the full extent of your capabilities, but you may not hunt down your competitors or destroy their food or deny them access to food. In other words, you may compete, but you may not wage war. Now, there are a couple major resources that we look to to really ground ourselves here. And the first was that uh, apparently the International Association for Political Science Students has a, has a really well-written piece that, that sums up war and its causes. Now, the person who authored that, Jan Tudovic, uh, there's a quote from her that I'd like to use to start us off here. And she says, if we want to understand or explain how peace can be achieved, we have to understand war and its causation. And so uh, this led me to another piece, which is uh, by a guy named Jack S. Levy. And it's called The Causes of War and the Conditions of Peace. And it's a really pretty good review of all the literature on this topic. And I think it was written in the 90s. So there may Mm -hmm. even be like a whole chunk more that wasn't covered in this from the last decade or so. We pulled other resources to kind of tap into that those ideas. But Levy basically looked at everything and just threw it into one paper. It's interesting, though, like at, at this point, without even getting into the ideas, like the three quotes we looked at. The judge would hold that war is this thing that like permeates us and yeah. and, and and preexists. It's our nature. Yeah. yeah. Whereas uh, Daniel Quinn would uh, and Ishmael rather would argue that that war is this this corruption that we've inflicted on the world and perhaps something we can take back. These are of course both uh, you know kind of simplistic views of it or boiled down views, uh, and but we're getting into the the more complex take on the question. So Levy establishes 
first of all, there's no consensus on what causes war. Like there's a lot of disagreement in the academic community about this, much less just between us human beings. In fact, he says some people argue it may be such a complex topic that it's, it's actually impossible to generalize in any manner, but they try. Um, and the, the general definition of war is this quote, a large scale organized violence between political units. So if you want to differentiate it from other violence, the categorization is essentially a minimum of a thousand battle related fatalities have to be counted as a metric and peace is subsequently identified as the absence of war. Now, the people who study this really deeply, they seem to distinguish between international war, civil war, and interstate wars to separate them from what I would have referred to as non-state actors. I think today most people would just say terrorism, mm-hmm. um, but, but violence that's not conducted by a, a state actor, right? So to this end, the study of war has actually moved more toward what they call low intensity wars. And this has been since the end of the Cold War. So it's okay. less focused on uh, total annihilation. <laughs> We're going to talk about that for sure. <laughs> um, Levy also says it's really difficult to trace the causes of war because there's so many variations on them, right? So if you think you have one theory and you try to apply it to every single instance of war, there's going to be a variation in there that just stands out, right? So that makes it even more difficult. Um, subsequently, he says he, he doesn't really buy into the whole human nature argument because of that, because there's so many variables. It's not constant enough. Instead, he says political scientists seem to be turning to uh, explaining war and peace while philosophers, psychologists and biologists ask why war, war occurs at all in the first place. Right. Um, so that's really just the the general setup. Okay, so we've now we've established like what war is, the the ground rules essentially in terms of how academics are looking at it, how it's studied. Now, what based on that, what are the causes? Is it human nature? Is it sociocultural? What are what are all these theories for its motivation? The first place that I'd like to point out is uh there is an annual report that's put together by the Heidelberg Institute for International Conflict Research every year, and it examines broadly what what leads to the current conflicts that exist in our modern society. And they call it a conflict barometer. Now, the 2015 edition focused on the following causes for war. And they have uh, – that's the latest report that's been published because they haven't finished the 2016 one yet. Uh, they categorize the um, the intensity of these conflicts, but they basically break it down by whether it's a territorial war, a war of secession, decolonization – uh, a war over autonomy, sy- the system in place or the ideology, national power, subnational predominance, international power. So that those three kind of fall back into that what I was talking about mm-hmm. earlier in terms of state actors. And then resources, which brings us back to our Ishmael quote. And then the last one is other. Paul Goodman has also put together a short explanation of this. It's kind of like the listicle. BuzzFeed version. I'm not saying that in like a derogatory way on the causes of war. It's on this site called Owlcation. And that's a a website that's run by educators about their academic areas of expertise. And that's O-W-L-C-A-T-I-O-N. You're you're trying to figure that out. An owl on vacation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so his we're going to use his list 
the Heidelberg list and Levy's uh, huge combination of theories as sort of like a grounding point for us as we move through all of these. And the first one is really the psychology, the human nature. So do we have war because of our innate inner rage? Is it because of the fears of mankind? Are we inherently violent? Or maybe ideology is inherent to the human brain. This is kind of the uh, the dawn of of man, two thousand one, a space odyssey idea that the, yeah. the the ape is inherently violent, or maybe pushed a little by the monolith, but it all goes back to some some pre human hominid bashing in some creature's skull and realizing this is the way, this is the this is the the path to ascension. Yeah, exactly. And Goodman lumps under this causes like. A lot, that a lot of you are probably thinking, and they were the first in my mind, religion or nationalism or revenge even, right? Uh, we could also potentially place civil wars and revolutionary wars here as they're often motivated by differing ideologies. But you, when you look back at that Heidelberg one, you know, those could fall under autonomy or decolonization, secession, things like that. So yeah. they break it out a little bit more finely. Yeah. Now, one one thought that, that came to mind as I was looking through this is, of course, that you talk about fears of mankind and uh, and these different motivations. Uh, I think it's important to note that the, the fear of the other yeah. is, is always a, a key motivator, be it a racial, cultural or linguistic other. The hurdles to our ability to to, to do this continue to pose one of the, the leading threats to peace that we we inevitably we have this just in, ingrained in us, this this barrier to seeing individuals. In, in another uh, group as being like us, as having the same values as us, as indeed being a part of us. Yeah. The, you know, my favorite example of this, and this isn't like an endorsement of the show. I know a lot of people mm-hmm. have issues with it, but Lost, yeah. they they straight up had a group of characters called the Others uh-huh. on the island that was that really uh, demonstrated this in a good way in that it was like, okay, they are other from us. We think of them as being outside of us and a threat, right? And, and, and almost not even human, mm-hmm. uh, in some cases. Uh, and it was, it was a, it was a nice analogy for what you're talking about there. Um, if you put it another way, there's a guy named Kenneth Waltz, who's an international relations theorist, and he talks about it as the individual is the first category of the cause of war. And he says, yeah, maybe human nature is the locus of the causes of war. We can find it in the behavior of mankind, but we're essentially talking about things like selfishness, misdirected aggressive impulses, and, and, and Walt, these are Waltz's terms, stupidity. And he says, look, uplifting and enlightening men may lead to the elimination of war. So that's why we have to study this. We need to scrutinize it. Um, and we're going to keep coming back to that. And I, I would say, I don't know, I don't want to put like words in the author's mouths, but I would assume that part of the project with the expanse is to enlighten people to what causes war so that in real life, we're less likely to just engage in that aggression. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have so many different media representations of war as just this noble enter- – like even today, we see these, uh, uh, these, these examples of it as this noble enterprise. And in our video games, like when we were talking about PTSD in a previous oh, yeah. episode, we talked about how like so much of the – so many of these games are just – they just – 
glorify uh, the, the violent details of war and turn it into pure entertainment. And occasionally you'll have a game. Uh, I forget the name of the game in particular that a number of our listeners said, oh, well, yeah. this one really focuses on PTSD a bit. But of course, no, but it, it basically nobody wanted to play that game yeah. because it, it did not offer the, uh, uh, the, 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 the glorious vision of warfare that we've come to expect from entertainment. Yeah. And, and also I, I think we would be out of line if we didn't at least give this some acknowledgement that in Waltz and in other referrals to war, they mm-hmm. refer to it very specifically as mankind and men. And you may be saying, well, why, why are we using those terms instead of humankind? Well, there's actually a whole set of feminist theories around the causes of war that argue that due to the gendered nature of states and cultures, that this contributes to the persistence of war in our world politics. So for me, like oddly enough, the best fictional example I can think of with this would be Wonder Woman, um, which is about to be pretty popularized, I think, even more than she already is in a, a American consciousness. But there, there's a big movie about to come out this summer. Um, but, you know, she comes from this nation of women that live in peace away from men. But they're also a warlike culture and they're capable of mass destruction like they they're. Uh, they're Amazons, you know, they're literally mm-hmm. <laughs> they're referred to. Um, so if men invade their territory, they, they're like this incredibly powerful military force. But but on their own, they live in total peace. Um, Levy argues, though, that feminist theories treat gender systems as a constant. Again, like this is his like argument against human nature as being uh, capable of explaining more because of all the variations. And so he says, look, that that also can explain these variations in war. I'd, it's worth having as part of our sort of set of tools to look at war with. But he doesn't think that's the single answer. Well, and it's it, I, I've, I've studied some of this before the, the, the question, well, what if what if we had uh, matriarchal? cultures yeah they engage in the same level of war and you kind of see arguments on both sides some people say oh yes we would uh the a a female-led society would be just as likely to engage in warfare as a male-led society but i mean basically it comes down to the fact we have so few models to actually look to on that that we we did we're essentially starting from zero yeah and and that is connected to we're going to talk about hegemony in a little bit here but i think too like Again, because we don't have examples that we can really look to as that say like one way or the other, whether it's gendered or not, as mm-hmm. like the main cause, it's difficult to parse out because we don't have a language for understanding it uh, any other way. Right. Um, so that, I mean, obviously, like I said, there's a lot more to the human nature argument and we'll weave in and out of that. But that's essentially the, the human nature psychological component. And then. We come to the economic argument. This is tied into the the uh, Ishmael quote that we had earlier. And this, I would say, is where the expanse really seems to fall in yeah. terms of like what's causing war in the in the in storyline. Uh, we're, we're essentially talking here about a competition for natural resources and wealth. There's national and international and in, in this case, interplanetary power and resources. Now, these resources could be precious materials or they could be livestock or natural resources like like oil or minerals. And some people believe that as the world's population increases, there's going to be an increase in the amount of wars that we have because we're going to be fighting over fundamental essentials such as water and food. And this is this is kind of what we see playing out on an interplanetary level in the expanse. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially water, uh, the, the 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 need for water and among among the belters is one of the, the, the key plot points that comes up again. And again. Yeah. And Mars, too. 
too, I think, because like they have this amazing technology, but they're on Mars and they're, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's not enough, if there's water there in this future, there's not enough to, to serve the population that's there. And they keep talking about how they're under like domed cities and everything. They don't breathe natural air. Um, and so, yeah. And then air, of course, as well would be a commodity, um, depending on how they, they generate it. Yeah. And then if you want whiskey, then and you're in the belt, you're going to have to depend on that moss whiskey. You know, I got to say, I, I would, well, that's the thing I was the most surprised by. I kept saying like, <laughs> where are they getting all this booze from? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it comes out more in the books, but, oh, yeah. but, uh, there, there's, there are a lot of discussions, uh, uh, with uh, Thomas Jane's character where he's talking about drinking moss whiskey. Okay. And, uh, at one point he's eating a meal where he has some, there's some real beans in there, but there are also some vat grown beans. Oh, and, okay. So there's, okay. There, there's, there's so many details that are thrown out there and in the books, but also incorporated to the show yeah. give you this this idea of the 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 economics of the world you're you're immersing yourself in. Well, Thomas Jane's character is pretty much constantly drinking, which is one of my, you know, amusements of his character. But that, that was definitely something I was like, okay, this fits the like noir detective oh, yeah. thing with his character. But Joe like, Miller, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that's his character's name. Um Man, yeah, he's he's great in this. I'm a I'm a Thomas Jane fan, anyways. As you, you'll probably be able to tell from the ad reads for the expanse <laughs> in this, but but yeah, he's really good in it. And um, yeah, he's I I was immediately thinking probably two three episodes, and I was like, wait a minute, where is he just getting all of this booze from? He's just constantly doing it. Yeah. yeah. So okay, the economic argument falls under Kenneth Waltz. His second explanation for war. And again, like we come back to like various explanations, right? Is it, is it, um, human nature? Is it economic? And he says, yeah, economic, but it's more about the state. And he argues that the social and political institutions that we create for ourselves, they should be seen as a factor in creating war. And if human nature can be changed through institutions, which is, I would say essentially like the basis of our, of our society, right? Like the idea uh-huh. is that like we can live, co- we can coexist peacefully under institutions, uh, that then those institutions should be our focus for stopping war. Yeah. Cause of course humans have always competed for resources just yeah. as all species do. I mean, it goes back to that, uh, that Ishmael quote, uh, we, and we even wiped out such competing intelligent hominid species as the Neanderthals in this very way. Yeah. I mean, if you ever want a model for how humans would uh, coexist with another intelligent species, that is sadly our best, our best example. It but, always makes me think of, and we've, we've talked about this on the show a, a bit lately, but like the, the, Prometheus myth, like, mm-hmm. you know, fire was given to us by the gods, but ultimately ends up causing problems. And war is one of those. Yeah. But, you know, when it comes to the Neanderthals, you can you can look back and there are different arguments about how all this actually played out. But exterminating a species just by outcompeting them, sort of accidental genocide, I guess, right. is uh, is one thing. But to actively wage war over the resources, to say, I will wipe you out, to get into that, that sort of, uh, you know, that Hellenistic model of destroy your enemy's city and then just salt the earth. Yeah. That's, a, that's another thing entirely. Well, why don't we take a break? And when we come back, we're going to continue on with these causes of war. All right, we're back. So I know we have a number of uh, Fallout fans out there. So yes. that quote, famous quote, uh, generally uh, narrated by Ron Perlman is probably uh, bouncing around in your brain. War never changes. Yeah, right? that's that's what you get read to you at the beginning of the game as, yeah. as your, your character's walking away with a dog. Yeah. And uh, 
the thing about that quote is that, yes, uh, on one hand, the horror of war remains. The death of innocence remains one of its central tenets. Uh, mutual assured destruction being the perhaps the purest modern version of this. When you're talking about nuclear strikes between uh, superpowers, you're talking about mega deaths of civilians. Yeah. Nice metal reference there. Dave Mustaine would be proud. Oh yeah, of you. I mean, they, that's where they got it. I believe it. that's where the title. Yeah, yeah. Megadeth is a um, is is basically a way to to measure the deaths that would occur during a large scale nuclear war. Right. But even on on like lower levels, there's just horror at every level. Uh, a 2010 BMJ published study pointed out that quote the use of rape as a weapon of war has assumed strategic importance uh, unquote in in the, in the wake of the Second World War. So war is is and has always been nothing short of just an obscenity. And there's your gendered nature of it again. Too. Yeah. And yet. To, to, you know, we can say, all right, Ron, you're, you're right for the most part. But on the other hand, uh, weapons and tactics evolve, uh, as does the shape of war, the exact definition of the thing, the ethical boundaries of war. We invoke modern laws of war, even as we bend and break them. Uh, the, and even though laws of war are, are ancient too, we can find examples of them in uh, the Mahabharata, the, the, the Hindu epic. We find them in the Torah. And much discussion continues even to this day on the idea of just war theory. The idea that, you know, if you, uh, if, if you fall, if you follow certain parameters, both in the execution and the, the reason for war, then there is a just use of it. People are still ethical. divided on that. Yeah. yeah right. Interesting. Yeah, you see some of that throughout these theoretical uh applications, but also just like the the scholars that are struggling with this are like trying to come to grips with not only like how this works in the grand scheme of humanity, but then like in the present tense, right? Like, mm-hmm. like how do I apply this to the situation of maybe the nation state that I exist in that's currently at war? Now, we've already discussed a number of the different uh, theories for for why we have war, how war works, where it came from. Various theories have covered this. One that I always thought had an, a nice ring to it. Uh, and again, this is probably an, an overly simplistic model there. But there are those who argue that basically you need a few things to come together for warfare to be practical. You need surplus resources to, ne- to necessitate high risk raids and high speed mounts to make this sort of long distance strike feasible. Yeah, it, it, it very much. Again, in an economic sense comes down to a risk reward yeah. model. Yeah. So there's there's some out there who have said well it basically comes down to the horse. Before individuals yeah. had horses, you just weren't able to really wage something that was that was war as we think of it today. Not everyone agrees with that, but like I say, the, the basic economic nut of that, I think, is is very interesting to think about. And as we're going to look to toward the end of this episode, but also in, in the context of the expanse, I mean once we once we invent interplanetary space travel and we have you know that's that's the next horse essentially yeah. right I, although i would argue like the airplane probably the car and then the airplane right because as we're going to discuss all of these things can be used as weapons on their own without even having weapons attached to them yeah and when you end up having states and empire the rise of states and empires in human civilization this changes war as well so they're waging war for resources but also for plunder for slave labor uh as uh, William M. Duggar uh, pointed out in uh, as a, a piece online, Evolution Theory, Social Sciences, Volume 3, uh, you need the slaves to work the natural world into things that you, you needed from the countryside. And uh, you also re- needed the slaves to keep your cities running well. Uh, the places, and these 
are the places where you grew and maintained the military required to power this sort of awful war-based convection of empire. Yeah, and and that is definitely like one road em- empire studies or like em- imperial studies. Mm-hmm. But uh, all of this leads us to the question of whether or not the causes of war derive from either international systems, national systems, or individual decision makers, right? So we get back to, is it is it just one person who's leading us to this? Or is there something fundamentally flawed with the institutions that we've created for ourselves. And, and I would say maybe it's all three, mm-hmm. right? And, and I probably a lot of these studies would too, but possibly it's just one given the various scenarios, right? So key actors in world politics, they're currently seen as sovereign states that are quote, acting rationally to advance their own security, power, and wealth. That's essentially, again, like the risk reward model, right? Like all they want to do is make sure that their people are secure. They have power over at least their own destinies and the wealth to lead, I guess, happy lifestyles. Now, the basics of this are what's referred to as the realist theory of war. And that is basically that the distribution of power is the primary factor in shaping international outcomes. And it's it's complicated. It gets even more complicated by making assumptions about foreign policy choices, and the outcomes of various na- nation states. I mean, we see this playing out in the news every day, essentially, right? Like, yeah. like, uh, so an example right now would be like the Russian hacking scandal, right? And we see that and it's always in the papers referred to as Russia did X or Russia is thought to have done Y, right? right. It's not Russia. And it's not all of Russia's citizens. It's people within the institutions, if that's the case, right? But then you have to ask yourself, is it their institution that's flawed? Or is it, again, like some people say, oh, it's a key actor. It's Putin. Putin is the one that's uh, influencing the institution negatively, right? Who knows? I mean, it's really difficult, like super com- complex to to dive into, especially on a current event scale, right? You need like years away from stuff like this and, and many more facts than we have to be able to make a decision one way or the other. Yeah, I think it was David Simon who uh, made the com- the comparison between our modern world and uh, the world of, of, of ancient myth. In the ancient myth, you had um, heroes and you had gods. Yeah. And both, ex- both exerted a tremendous amount of power. Um, more so with the gods, but the heroes could really turn the tide as well. And today, instead of gods, we have systems. Yeah. And, uh, but we still have a place for the individual and the individual can still be tremendously uh, influential or can just be crushed under the heels of said godlike system. Man, you and I have been circling around this topic for a while now and I hadn't even realized it. We did the hero episode recently oh, yeah. or heroism, but then the wicked problems episode definitely ties into this as well. Like it certainly war is a wicked problem. Yeah, I mean anytime we uh, cover the human condition, I mean yeah. essentially we're going to be dealing it's on some level yeah. with with war. And I got to say uh David Simon but My go-to guy for quotes, pretty much always trust, trust him with what he's saying. I follow him on Twitter and I find insights from him almost every day. The guy is crazy smart and has just really, um, if you're not, I guess I should say who David Simon is. Yeah. Author of Homicide, Life on the Streets. Yeah. And, uh, and later, of course, The Wire, The May, uh, various other projects he's been involved with. Those are probably the two big ones recently. Yeah. Yeah. So that's Uh, how most particularly did a war based one. Uh, yeah. That's called Generation Ah. Kill. And is is excellent. Uh, maybe the best 
depiction of modern war that I've ever seen in, in entertainment. Okay, so out of these arguments that we're talking about comes these capitalist economic systems, and they're seen actually as being the best guarantors of peace. So basically it goes like this, that the state has trade, and that generates economic advantages for state parties, and that the anticipation of war would disrupt trade, right? So it would also reduce the welfare of the people who were living within these nation states. So some argue that this is what led to the sort of current model of what's referred to as neoliberalism that we in the United States exist in. Um, and it, but you're basically looking at like the, the argument is that like, as long as we keep free market trade going on between international or in the case of the expanse interplanetary, uh, states, then w- that's like a deterrent for war. It's also, this is the, the point where I think we should address hegemony, although man, hegemony is a really tough topic to dive into. I, I, I gotta say just for me personally, it is such a difficult concept that it's still being ironed out in, in many academic circles, but I studied it in graduate school and it left my head spinning after every class. Uh, in fact, the most difficult book I have ever read is called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy by Ernesto Leclau and Chantal Mouffe. Uh, it, that book, it was like, you know, any, any like, uh, piece of literature that people say is like really difficult, like Thomas Pynchon or David Foster Wallace or something like that, or, or James Joyce, like, this thing was so much harder than any time I've tried to tackle stuff like that. But let's try to take a stab here at just a short definition of hegemony so we can line it up because I think it works within the parameters of the expanse and mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Now, this is from the Salem Press Encyclopedia entry, and the term hegemony is used to refer to a group state or other entity that exhibits political or cultural dominance over another group. And it's used in political science to refer to usually countries or states that exert powers over one another. But the ancient Greeks actually developed the term uh, and they used it to describe the interaction of their city states, which were called polis, polises, uh, with nearby territory. So how those city states interacted with their neighbors, essentially. Today, though, it, it really refers to the domineering behavior of one group over another. It may not even necessarily be national actors. Now, the power that's wielded by one group over another in this case could be military in nature, which, you know, leads to war. But more often it comes, uh, due to financial or technological superiority, which is backed by military authority. And we see that in the expanse, certainly, uh, with, with earth and then how it's connected to the belt, right? Like earth has, you know, they're not like at war with the belt, but they are dominant over the belt. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're backing that both with their, uh, trade of things like water, but also with their military authority. The United States, for instance, is understood to rise to hegemonic status, partly because of petroleum production and the rise of the automobile. Uh, another example in the expanse would be that Mars has th- this like superior technology, but Earth has access to resources like air and water. That's what puts them in dominance. Usually a hegemonic power encourages cooperation before they resort to force. So it's not, it's not necessarily always militaristic and warlike. Uh, and in, in fact, more often than not, it's, it's 
seen as being ideological. Yeah. But of course, it's always worth remembering that that war is always in the background. War and force is always in the background of any kind of of law and enforcement of law. Yep. I mean, even when it comes down to paying your, your taxes, there's a there's a long line of things that happen if you don't pay your taxes. But the end result can be an official showing up at your door armed. So I right. mean, it, it's, it's always there in the background. I mean, you could tie that into the, um, the Heidelberg variations on like secessionist or autonomous war movements. Mm-hmm. Um, now last bit about hegemony here, the, the modern thought, modern studies on it were heavily influenced by a guy named Antonio Gramsci and Gramsci argued, argued that ideology and ways of thinking also acted hegemonically. And he wrote these ideas while he was imprisoned as a communist during the rise of Mussolini and fascism in Italy. So he basically had, I think it was like 40 something like little notebooks that he filled with these ideas that were published later. And he thought that hegemony meant that the dominant group maintains its control through consent. So to your taxes example, I consent to paying these taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that's basically how it's maintained, but there's always possibility of force behind it. This included social classes and not just national actors. So in addition, the dominant group doesn't necessarily control all of the areas of a subordinated culture. So this is why we have such a a heavy uh, amount of subcultural theory and studies in universities now. Entire ideological systems like democracy, those can be seen as hegemonic. Gramsci even argued that such concepts are dominant because they seem common and they seem natural to those of us, but that's because we exist within them, right? So, for example, uh, the, a common common example used to illustrate current hegemony would be like the idea that America is a Christian nation, even though it's got a broad diversity of religious beliefs. Um, this stuff is really difficult to talk about, as I mentioned earlier, because – and Gramsci and other theorists have argued this since then. The very language we use in society is formed by whatever the dominant ideology is. Subsequently, that makes it difficult to talk about anything that would be close to change. Mm-hmm. So basically the, the hegemonic idea here is sort of overlaid on top of all of these causes of war. All right. So as war plays on and the, uh, the the culture of war plays on, uh, it undoubtedly becomes uh, an enterprise that moves cultures, religions, trade routes, customs, all manner of human creations and humans, too, across vast distances. And it also advances technologies. It serves as the driving energy behind human endeavors and mega projects. Uh, so for many, war is highly profitable. Oh, yeah. And that that means if you're the head of an industry, if you're a, a, a CEO, but also it means if you're the, just at some point down the chain, you're benefiting from the technology. Uh, you know, the, the, the very, a lot, a lot of times you can think of like the very small, uh, everyday technologies that came out of the space race, which of course was, uh, was part of the, the Cold War, part of this competition between, um, two superpowers. Yeah. And we see that in the expanse as well, too. They, mm-hmm. they, they did. I, I, I kind of suspect that the, the people who work on this show and maybe we'll, we'll get something from uh, Nareen Shankar about this, that they have done their homework like you and oh, I yeah, did. Yeah. And, and before they sat down and they executed this massive project. Yeah. I, I feel like the show lines up with, with pretty much everything we, we found uh, in research for this episode. Now, war, of course, also unifies. It has a, a way of distracting 
individuals from domestic woes, in large part by invoking and exploiting the threat of the other. And studies, too, have shown that the horrors of war harden group bonds. And uh, so we end up with just war beginning more war. Yeah. In fact, uh, Levy, he mentions this as what is referred to as the rally round the flag effect, which always makes me think of that, that Rage Against oh, the, the Rage Machine song. song. Yeah. Rally round the flag. Uh, but basically, the idea here is that leaders anticipate popular support during war. And so sometimes it's tempting for them to undertake risky foreign ventures or policy simply to bolster their own support. So that's something to keep in mind. That is a, yeah, that is a politics. terrifying statement. I think for yeah. uh, for everyone to hear it right now, but it's, it, yeah, it's quite scary and not the scariest thing that we're going to talk about on the podcast yeah. today. But um, sometimes this is referred to in the literature as diversionary theory of war, but uh, sometimes it's also done through scapegoating connected to ethno nationalism. So not only are you sort of connecting the leader is connecting the nation state to community and power, but ethnicity to the nation as well, right? Very dangerous stuff, as we've seen in the past. Now, in the expanse, this may be what's going on with both Earth and the belt as they are arguing for war uh, to possibly solidify their own political power. Right. Like the like the terrorist organization in the belt, like they're basically arguing for autonomy mm-hmm. so they can solidify their own power. Right. But like likewise, Earth wants to solidify their power by keeping the belt under their control so that they have uh an organization that's out in space that can can match or at least keep them up to date on what's going on with Mars. Right. And according to Levy, democratic leaders who initiate wars like this, what I was talking about where they're they're scapegoating or where they do the rally around the flag effect, that's usually unsuccessful and they're more likely to be thrown out of power than non-democratic ones. So that's, I suppose, encouraging at least. The personal cost, though, can be much greater to authoritarian leaders. So well, that makes sense, right? Like if you're an authoritarian leader and you you end up uh, taking your nation to war, like if the results are poor, either your people are going to overthrow you and probably kill you or you're going to be killed in the war that you've conducted. So then this leads to another like section of war theory, which is essentially demographic in nature. Uh, the idea here being that population growth leads to scarce resources, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, the ethno-nationalism ties into this, but also something that's called youth bulge theory. And it's I don't think it's what you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah, there's actually an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that went into this a little bit. I believe it was uh, yeah, the teenage brain. Oh, OK. And it talks about... Um, in that episode, we, we explored how the teenage brain is different from an adult brain. Yeah. That, that there's, there are different priorities, like biological prior, priorities to break away from your, essentially your tribe, to find a new tribe, to find a mate. Thing, issues, threats all feel that much more immediate. You know, it's that you're yeah. young, you feel like you can change the world or you should change the world kind of vibe. Yeah, you and I have established previously on the show that the human brain doesn't finish even evolving yeah. until age 25. Yeah, it's kind of one way to think of the teenager. Think of the teenager as like a winged ant that's supposed to fly (laughs) and found a new colony. That's essentially the idea. So that ties into youth bulge theory, uh, the idea that it depends on how many young people you have around. And I know this kind of sounds like blame the young people for everybody, everything, blame uh, millennials or whatever. But, I mean, these are the stats. About 80 percent of the world's civil conflicts since the 1970s have occurred in countries with young, fast-growing populations. And this is all according to analysis by the nonprofit Population Action International. So a youth boom contributed to the rise of the Nazis in 1930s. 
to uh, also contributed to uh, Japan's uh, military ambitions in the Pacific, Imperial Japan. Uh, 1989 Tiananmen Square protests in, in China, 60s, 70s countercultural revolution in the West. Afghanistan experienced a youth bulge in the years following the 2001 U.S. invasion. So, uh, you know, all this is not to say that youth bulge leads directly to war or unrest. Uh, in fact, uh, I mean, in the um, the countercultural revolution, I think you can you can look to the opposite. You can see like a, a youth bulge movement for 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 peace. Yeah. However, um, the, it just provides ample kindling still for so for for social spark of uh, religious or ethnic friction, fr- friction, political rivalry, economic disparities, uh, food shortages, what have you. Like it, they're the young people are there. They have the numbers. They're they're ready to do something. What is going to be the thing that animates them? Yeah, and what is going to be the what is going to be the methodology they employ? You know, this is interesting. I I don't have notes about this in front of me. This is pure speculation. Mm-hmm. But I wonder how youth bulge theory ties into planning what the draft age is for a, a nation's military if it has a draft. Hmm. I mean, I've always understood it as being like, well, of course, like the draft age is what, what's it like twenty five here in the United States? Something. Oh my God, is it the same thing as when your brain stops evolving? No, surely not. The the cutoff? Yeah. What's the cutoff age? I'm not sure about the cutoff. But I guess what I'm getting at is like I'd always thought that uh the draft age was was connected to, you know, youthfulness being that like you're at the peak of your physical acumen, mm-hmm. right? Like you you'd be the most efficient at war whereas like you and me at our current age would be okay. But like we're probably better off hanging back in the offices and doing strategy and podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, yeah, part of it would seem to be that the mind is is perfect. Right. That like the mind is prepared for war and malleable. Yeah. Okay. So now the last bit uh, in terms of causes that I just want to add in here is uh, referred to as rationalism uh, in terms of whether or not, you know, we're talking about territorial gain or uh, maybe a community slash nation expanding in nature. Kenneth Walt calls this the third and final cause for war. He locates it as being a description of an international system that has the authority to stop states from forcefully pursuing their own interests. So ideally, this is what the United Nations would be for us, right? But it's possible we live in a condition of what Waltz refers to as international anarchy, uh, in that he, he says, well, do we actually have a supreme authority that can just stop war in its tracks? He says without basically international anarchy under his terms is a permissive or underlying cause of war. And we have too many limitations on the cooperation between states in our current international system, because unlike in the expanse, at least is how it's been portrayed so far on the TV show. Earth is like a unified planet that the United Nations actually runs. Presumably there aren't, although we do know that there are sort of like militia movements, right? Um, Because one of the main characters was like raised in like a militia sort of cult kind of. Um, But, but more so just that like they don't seem to be dealing with uh international war, right? They're more right. concerned about what's going on with Mars. They seem to have a sub-Star Trek level of control over their planet. Yeah, that's a good example. I was thinking about Star Trek as well in terms of like uh, the what the United Nations is ideally supposed to do, right? Or yeah. I guess the United Federation of Planets in that case. 
All right, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to take everything we've been talking about here, what we know about war in the present, and we're going to extrapolate that into the interplanetary future. Okay, we're back. So now it's time where we get into the, I don't want to say fun stuff, but the (laughs) science fiction stuff uh, and taking these theories that we've set up in the beginning half of the show and kind of extrapolate them outward. How's this going to look on an interplanetary scale? Well, fortunately, we have uh, so many wonderful and not so wonderful sci-fi examples to look to when it comes to to interplanetary war. Uh, but, but let's stop to consider just the notion of interplanetary war within our solar system versus that of interstellar war. Yeah. War between uh, between planets and planetary civilizations that are in separate star systems. OK, one of the issues here, of course, is just the very nature of science fiction. Science fiction dreams of the future, but it's often about the present or or even about the past. It's an extrapolation of our current concerns and anxieties, technological, political, spiritual, social, etc., taking all of this and then gazing into the future. Every science fiction property speaks from a particular vantage point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is what makes science fiction so compelling. Oh, yeah. And especially something like The Expanse. I mean, when I watch The Expanse, it is not lost on me. Like, here are some lessons or commentary that we can take insights away from based on our current situation. Right? Yeah. Like, clearly, it, it's obvious that it was written in a post-9-11 world. Exactly. And so when we envision the future, when we try and envision war in the future, well, we can only take what we have now and extrapolate it. In the case of larger scale hot wars between major nation states, we're thankfully forced to contemplate older models of warfare. Uh, the world wars and all of their their horror and, and truly globe spanning industry. I think we always have to remember that the, the Second World War was truly a global affair. Virtually no part of the world remained untouched by it, if not by the actual combat, then at least by the economic models of it. Uh, we touched on this a bit in our uh, cargo cults episode. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, we often tend to fall back on our own colonial history, complete with its wars and genocides, in order to envision the founding of off-world colonies and the possible splintering of planet-based states. So uh, let's consider that. Um, I ran across a a, a nice uh, source on this. Astrophysicist Michael H. Hart uh, wrote about the matter in the book Interstellar Migration and the Human Experience, this being a collection of uh, essays by different individuals. And he pointed out a few key things to keep in mind when applying Earth affairs to an interplanetary or interstellar setting. So first of all, space is huge. While technology has drastically reduced terrestrial travel to a matter of hours, quote, there is no reasonable hope that future technology will ever succeed in reducing interstellar travel times to months. So in other words, we were simply contained in this via the confines of special relativity. Bearing some amazing, miraculous breakthrough, we can't beat a beam of light in a drag race. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think that this is an important point to, to just like throw in. Like we're talking about, you know, the realities of it, but also like the fictional popularity of it. And of course, like what is the biggest fictional, especially science fictional property right now that everybody knows and loves is Star Wars, yeah. right? But like when you look at that, there, there it's interstellar and 
Uh, I mean, I'd say other than the prequels, it's not necessarily about actual war, right? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it is and it isn't, but not in the way that we're talking about here. It's more about like a group of characters. Yeah, because the, the reality is that based on our understanding of special relativity, a star-to-star travel would likely work out to at least a 50-year journey. And so that's, that's the Kessel Run. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, and this is not, again, this is this is based on what we know, conceivable future, yeah. known technologies and, and foreseeable technologies. This is the limit. This is like a hard reality limit, right. uh, hard argues. So based on this, galactic colonization... Yeah, it would be possible. You could have this sort of, uh, you know, Ian and Banks culture, uh, universe, Star Wars, Dune, what have you. But it would require two million years of human endeavor. And during that time, we would change drastically. So century by century, you'd have genetic advances. You'd have bimillennial cultural change, like, you know, like two different major changes every millennium. Mm. Uh, major genetic engineering events occurring every 10,000 years and natural evolution producing marked changes every million years. So basically the human race that would be able to travel from one star to another would be indistinct. They they wouldn't look like us. Like we we wouldn't be able to tell that they were. You would see change and splintering occurring at various levels. Uh, so given the time frame, given the distances involved and the limits of travel, we're looking at a completely colonized galaxy in two million years, but one consisting of splintered civilizations and cultures and even you could even say special uh, to the turn of to the tune of a few hundred billion that to match the the number of stars. Now, as a side note, Hart also throws out there that since uh, two million years is a drop in the bucket compared to the Milky Way galaxy's 10 billion year history, it means that any other emergent civilization out there would have had the same odds. Since nothing has seemingly expanded throughout the Milky Way galaxy in the previous two million year increment, he says, quote, we might reasonably infer that we are the first colonizing civilization in our galaxy and for the moment probably the only species with an advanced technology. If this is so, it will be our descendants who are the, who are likely to colonize and populate the entire galaxy. Yeah. So all these distances that we've been talking about, these issues would make it difficult, if not impossible, for a centralized power or emperor to maintain control over a mere 100 light year radius area, much less anything larger. Right. And uh, and he uh, Hart points to a quote by the the late great Arthur C. Arthur C. Clarke here, um, author of 2001. Uh, a space odyssey who said all the starborn colonies of the future will be independent. Their liberty will be inviolably protected by time as well as space. Now, Hart also goes on to point out that various other factors contribute to the idea that war isn't going away anytime soon. Even, even if we move out uh, into uh, into other star systems, uh, he's, he says that uh, most of the Milky Way galaxy will become populated by more aggressive civilizations and species. And the long range forecast is for continued aggression, war and change. There is a, a small silver lining here in Hart's prediction of a of a human populated galaxy that still has war. He says that um, that he believes that interstellar war would be rare. Uh, far more of a rarity than it is on Earth. Again, distance and travel have to be factored in. He says there might be a war every 50,000 years in his estimation. Okay, and I think we're going to get into a little bit of why that is, but that that calls into question, you know, when we look at these fictional examples, the expanse, you know, that's 
uh, about 200 years from now. Mm -hmm. The idea I think that Hart is working from is that like as we technologically and and biologically evolve, that we will become less of a warlike species. So he's working from, I think, the human nature component. Well, and just the the limits, because basically saying that you're dealing with such distances here that the the type of governments you see in Star Wars, Dune or Firefly is another example. Uh, these would just be fantastic. How would you possibly right. maintain dominance and rule over these vast distances? Now, Star Wars, Dune and Firefly, they all work because you have essentially because you have a magical faster than light travel system that pops up, something that, you know, the, the author doesn't have to really explain all that much, but it's there and it makes this this super fast travel possible. Uh, it makes it comparable to the short travel times we experience now on Earth due to advanced technology. Yeah, I always wonder, like, in Star Wars, especially in the newer ones when I've been watching them in the theaters, mm-hmm. like, like how long is it actually taking them when they're, like, jumping into hyperspace? You know, like, is it is it, like, what we see on the screen? Is it, like, three mm-hmm. minutes or is it, like... <laughs> Couple days and we just, you know, the, the director left some of that on the, on the floor. They cut out like the three days of them sitting around in the back of the Millennium Falcon. Playing that game with yeah, the little claymation. That chess game. Yeah. yeah. That, I wish someone would make that into a video game. That would, that yeah. would rock. Now, uh, it's worth noting on the expanse, we do not, they do not require such a leap of faith. The expanse does not in, uh, the, the plot in that world does not involve a faster than a light. Uh, speed travel system. They do have something that's called the Epstein drive, which is a, a major, uh, a, a majorly important factor in that world. But it's not faster than light. Faster than light travel remains impossible for humans in the expanse and therefore lines up with a lot of what Hart is saying here. Yeah. And I think that that's why we're able to see such realistic depictions of what's leading up to war on the mm-hmm. expanse as well. There's another theorist and author of nanomedicine named Robert A. Freitas Jr., I believe is how it's pronounced. Um, and he's often brought up along with Hart uh, because he wrote in the 1980s about coming up with a more cost-effective search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And he did so by using the Kardashev scale, which you've probably heard us mention here before. Robert and previous hosts on the show have actually covered it. There's, uh, I believe, two episodes, right? It's a two-parter. I think I went out. It's been a while. I know it's, it's come up in time. videos and I've written stuff for the site about it. Yeah. If if you're unfamiliar with it, though, I'm going to give you a, a real brief breakdown. But if mm-hmm. you want to go back, we have previous content about that. Uh, Kardashev scale is a theoretical scale that was created in the 1960s by astrophysicist Nikolai Kardashev. And it describes the level of advancement of a civilization based on its ability to harness the energy of its surrounding environment. And he has three types. The first is type one. Masters of planetary energy. Type two are the masters of solar system or star energy. And type three are masters of galactic scale energy. So I think we're basically talking about gods at that point. Yeah. Um, but Freitas argues that since only type two and three could realistically afford star probe technology, basically interstellar travel, that interstellar warfare would be trivial to civilizations like this, the energy expenditure of like what we would think of as their warships would be minimal compared to the resources that they have. So they wouldn't have the economic uh, 
battles over, you know, what resources they have for their ships or for their survival, like water and air and food and uh, oil or whatever, what have you. Um, and so it's interesting, wouldn't war over economics be less likely than, well, in the expanse, it's arguable, I think they're still a type one civilization, right? So this, this lines up with what Hart's talking about here. They, they've only conquered the uh, planetary resources, the energies of one planet. Right. They haven't really gotten out of the solar system as far as I can tell. Yeah. And of course, here in the actual modern world, we're still level zero. So mm-hmm. we're sort of fumbling for that further first rung on the ladder. It really, you know, uh, thought exercises like this really make you consider and realize that we aren't all that in terms of like <laughs> how we like to think that we're so far evolved along the line of human history. But it's like, well, in terms of what this guy imagined and was able to sort of quantify with this uh, theoretical scale, we're still zero. Now, I also turned to a great thread that was on Quora about how interplanetary war would be fought. Normally, I, I don't do this for our podcast episodes or for research that we do here at How Stuff Works, but we're getting into pretty speculative territory. So I wanted to see what crowdsourcing the question brought up because there were, turned out there were a lot of smart people that contributed to this thread. And the two things I wanted to mention in particular, the top post was by somebody named Mikhail Danilak, and he argued that interplanetary war would be all about who had the best technology to destroy their enemies. And we see that playing out in the expanse, right? Because the stealth tech for ships and the discovery of something, I don't want to mention it because of uh, spoilers and plot points, but there's something that's discovered basically on a scientific level that can turn the tide of war. Danilek argues there's four possible results for interplanetary war. Mutually assured destruction, which brings us back to what we were talking about with the butter war in our episode yeah, on butter. The butter battle, yeah. Um, a race to get the best technology first, so then the person who has that technology, or the, sorry, not the person, but the, the entity, I guess the planet in this case, would be the winner that takes everything. Uh, Intervention by a more powerful civilization. So I think he's essentially talking about aliens here, that like aliens would come in and intervene in an interplanetary war and be like, whoa, like we're we're Kardashev type three halt. Yeah. You know, uh, or uh, total war, which unfortunately, a lot of the examples that we found seem to indicate that. Even like preliminary beginnings of an interplanetary war would lead to what we see today as just being all out destruction. Yeah. Um, another poster named Chris Rapier argued that the mass movement of troops and equipment that we're used to in warfare, it just isn't feasible in space, regardless of whether it's interstellar or interplanetary. So it probably wouldn't involve us like having vast fleets that move through space because it's too expensive and the fleets would be like huge targets. They'd be super vulnerable. Right. So like, again, like star Wars, like I'm thinking of like the stuff, the clone Wars stuff, right. Where they've got these like big ships that are dropping all these clone stormtroopers on planets and then they're inter- they're engaging in these massive battles, right? Like those ships would just be like huge targets from so far away because the theoretically the planet's technology would be able to de- detect them and shoot them down. Yeah, like this is an, a classic example of with Star Wars. What you have essentially is World War II in space. Yeah, like it's a it's yeah. a futuristic take on that level of warfare and warfare technology. 
And that leads us to possibly the most disturbing study <laughs> I've read in all of my time on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, The Lethality of Interplanetary Warfare. That's right. Now, uh, to set up, uh, let's talk just a minute about colonialism. So in order for planetary expansion to take place, something very much like colonialism has to occur. Uh, we can think, uh, I think we're all on board with this concept, right? You have to discover, you have to explore, you have to settle, then you colonize and the colony grows. But then we know what comes next, right? Right. In the case of, of so many colonies here on earth, there's this, there's a more gradual easement of ties. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a long process, a, a long divorce that occurs between colonial master and colony. But especially uh, since we're Americans, it's impossible to avoid the American Revolutionary War model. And this, of course, is when uh, the former British colonies waged war against the British crown in order to gain independence. Right. So autonomy. We, yeah. So we might logically look to the possibility of a colonized Mars for ideas on, on how this might go down. And in The Expanse, uh, we go into the book uh, into the books, into the TV series with an independent Martian state that's ruled by the, the Martian Congressional Republic. And uh, in the backstory here, there was an attempt to, to secede by the Martians and it nearly came to war. But then the Martian forces, the forces developed the Epstein drive that I already mentioned. They had de- they developed it first and they gained technological superiority. So suddenly they had the advantage over Earth with this mm-hmm. technology. They could travel faster, uh, not as fast as light, but like the, they had the fastest ships yeah. in, in the solar system. So then they reached out to the UN and they said, Hey, you need this technology too. Uh, why don't we just trade? You give us our, uh, and our independence and you can have the Epstein drive as well. This is why when the show begins, basically like when we see like these super fast, like fighter kind of ships in outer space, people just automatically assume, Oh, it's gotta be the Martians mm-hmm. because they're known for having uh, both uh, fast technology and stealth technology. Yeah, they took an unprecedented technological leap, like nothing godlike, but enough yeah. to where it prevented outright war. Now, one of the big uh, areas to of consideration here when we're comparing the Revolutionary War to any of these sci-fi Martian examples is that uh, the Revolutionary War in- entailed late 18th century military technology. And at the time, it took four to five weeks for a vessel to reach the United States from England. So that brings us to this paper. Robert really sets us up because colonialism is important to the argument that's presented here. The authors, their names Crawford and Baxter. Yeah, Ian A. Crawford and Stephen Baxter. Baxter, some of you may be familiar with, he is a British hard sci-fi author. They basically argue that because of the confinement necessary for life-supporting facilities in space, any kind of revolution against a governing body, like what we, you know, we think of with the American Revolution or like what is uh, sort of set up as the preface for the expanse, mm-hmm. it would be hazardous and Basically impossible because of the energies wielded by interplanetary cultures. Any war like this would be just absolutely catastrophic and it could threaten the entire human species. Yeah. So the the intensity of the weapons has changed. But uh, one area where revolutionary war on Earth versus on Mars, uh, one area where it lines up kind of nicely uh, is that uh, that issue of distance. Right. Because you think about uh, about the distance between Earth and Mars. Um, 
it varies. We have these things called Mars oppositions. Uh, so Mars and Earth, the distance between the two, it's con- it's constantly changing. The maximum distance between the two planets is a colossal 250 million miles with the sun between us. The average distance is more like 140 million miles. But the closest popular po- possible distance is a tantalizing 33.9 million miles. So the closest we've come to that window in, in uh, recent history was uh, uh, 2003's Mars opposition of 34.8 million miles. But in July, but on July 27th, 2018, coming up, uh, that will give us 35.8, which, uh, which ain't, ain't bad at all. Yeah, we better get going. Yeah. And we won't see anything like that again until 2035 and then only by 400,000 miles. So I know these are big numbers to throw around, but the, the basic idea here is that, that, uh, even in a future, there is still a, an enormous Atlantic Ocean between colonial master and colony and it's an atlantic yeah. ocean that shrinks and expands depending on uh, on a planetary rotation and think about the resources that you would need not only to uh have such a venture take off but also to accommodate such a venture on such a long journey yeah so you know so basically atlantic ocean and the earth to mars void yeah, it wouldn't be that different. 150 to 300 days to travel to Mars based on current and near future propulsion. But again, that's that weaponry, as you mentioned. That's mm-hmm. where it's going to be different because we live in a world of the WMDs. And most terrifyingly of all, we have that mutually assured destruction. Uh, nuclear weapons alone put an entirely different spin on the possibilities for interplanetary war. And we should mention that in the expanse, it's established in the first episode that they have nuclear weapons and they use them in space. Yes, now, uh, th- that paper we we're talking about by Crawford and Baxter, they point to se- – it's a really cool paper. If you get a chance to, to read it, uh, yeah. look it up. Uh, they point to several different sci-fi examples, but they they, uh, they mention Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars novel uh, because uh, it highlights that an unterraformed Martian civilization would be highly susceptible to attack. So all you'd have to do is crack the dome, damage the environmental support system. Uh, there's a, a, a part in the novel where high oxygen levels are introduced into a dome enclosure so that they can flash burn everything without damaging the infrastructure too much. It's like Total Recall. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, the, yeah, Total Recall, I think, provides a, a nice hostile uh, view of what Mars colony could, in broad strokes, be. Mm. Uh, it, it would be vulnerable to attack. You All you'd have to do is just attack the infrastructure. And that includes not only any domes or cities on the ground or under the ground, but also orbital space elevators, other things that are key to maintain this umbilical cord between a planet that is that only has like just a, a small amount of life on it yeah. and the the life-sustaining home planet. So again, like not only would the ships that would be necessary for warfare between planets be crazy vulnerable, but then like the actual systems mm-hmm. that keep us alive out there would also be incredibly vulnerable. So you're just looking at like, you know, total destruction. And to call back to our Rods from Gods episode, uh, kinetic weapons alone would prove devastatingly effective against the planet's surface. So you wouldn't even need nuclear weapons in this scenario. Yeah. And so let's just touch on this real quick. But Robert and I did an episode last year on this that, uh, again, was very disturbing, mm-hmm. but is essentially about the idea of uh, to dropping uh, huge items, in this case, I think they were metal metal telephone pole-sized uh, beams from outer space on targets on Earth uh, that would have the yield of a nuclear weapon in terms of, like, how much energy 
is exacted upon their target. Now, space weapons and vehicles are already being developed in the United States and other nations so that we can establish supremacy in outer space, right? Much of this, we know this, it came from the Cold War and the need for a missile defense system in space. Uh, and, and that's where sort of the rods from God idea came from. If you go back to that episode, we talk about, um, I believe his name was Pornell. He was the one who sort of pitched this theory. And again, he was a science fiction writer who essentially ended up working for the United States government. So when you see stuff like the expanse, it's not all that, uh, un- it's, it's not all that unfeasible that, you know, these guys might be coming up with ideas that are used in, in future incursions. Yeah. So Crawford and Baxter in their paper, they bring this to the front of their argument, beginning with the War of the Worlds and the idea that in that the Martians could have just totally destroyed Victorian England with simple kinetic energy bombardment from outer space. The only reason they didn't is because they wanted to colonize the planet. They wanted something left over. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things about Rods from Gods that we uh, that we that we covered in the episode was the reason it wasn't a feasible uh, weapon system for modern humans is that you have to get that stuff into orbit. You have to have orbital dominance to then drop these weapons. But if you're a spacefaring civilization, if you're just an interplanetary civilization leaving Earth, going to Mars, you already have orbital uh, dominance. Exactly. Just having the ability to travel in space at an interplanetary level allows you or others to subvert space travel technology and turn it into kinetic weapons. And this is where it gets super disturbing for me. This proposal is exactly what was done with airplanes on September 11th in 2001. So, for example, the kinetic energy of our current International Space Station's orbit that is equivalent to three kilotons of TNT. And that is nothing compared to the energies of interplanetary craft that we may have in our future. By Crawford and Baxter's estimation, the kinds of ships that we see flying around in the expanse, they would have the kinetic energy equivalent of the energy release in an all-out nuclear war. It really, really that's super scary, the idea mm-hmm. that, like, Anybody, whether it's the, the, the civilization that possesses that technology or maybe like a, in, in the case of it could happen in the expanse world, right? Like a terrorist organization takes over some of that technology and just flies a ship into a planet. It would utterly annihilate the human civilization that's there. Really makes you think a little bit more on that episode that we did on the cases against space. Yeah. And like all the arguments about why we shouldn't travel into space. I don't remember this being one of them, like just the simple fact of us creating the technology that would allow us to travel between planets could be subverted to destroy humanity. Yeah, like there's a proportional scale for a a, a technological creation. So an automobile is also a murder weapon. Yeah. Uh, An an airliner is also a weapon of mass destruction. And therefore, you can extrapolate that and just say that, yeah, a spaceship is a weapon of of genocide. Totally. If used in that direction. Yeah, I'd never even thought about that before. I mean, Star Wars, just think about Star Wars. What if Han Solo just like flew the Millennium Falcon at warp speed into the Death Star? Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that how the president defeats the aliens in Independence Day? Doesn't he just fly it right. right up the middle? I think you're right. Yeah. 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 Not a spaceship. I think it was like an F-16. I know, and I also never saw the sequel that came out last year. So I don't know. I mean, he's in it, but I think <laughs> How would How's he back? I oh, thought yeah. he died. No, no, no. The no, no. Maybe Randy Quaid. It was Randy Quaid. He flew it up yeah. the middle. Okay. Uh, we, we so quickly forget the, <laughs> the sacrifices of, of, of Randy, Randy Quaid. Quaid. 
Um, this all comes back to real basic, like, strate- strategy in terms of warfare, right? So a higher location has always been strategically important in war. It provides an advantage to whichever side has it. Uh, Robert and I and those of you who are D&D players would understand this as simple D&D mechanics, right? You get a plus two to your role if you're above your opponent and they are prone. So think about it on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. If you're in outer space and the planet is below you, you know, even though we've been talking about how vulnerable those ships would potentially be, if they're on a suicide run, though, or or even if there's nobody in it, they're just, you know, remotely flying this thing into a planet. It's absolutely devastating. Yeah, I think that in modern D&D rules, you would get an advantage on your role. Oh, right? that's right. Yeah. yeah, fifth edition. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um As such, satellites have become really valuable just in terms of our modern warfare for deploying troops, right? This is where we got GPS from. We all have GPS on our phones now, and it's the Mm -hmm. greatest thing ever, right? But it came out of determining what soldiers' bearings were using a constellation of satellites. Yeah. And satellites can also be used as weapons to shoot down terrestrial missiles. This is the whole idea of the other Star Wars, the one that uh, Ronald Reagan in the United States established, the Strategic Defense Initiative. Yeah, the one I remember as a kid getting it. They would have my parents would have the news on, and there would be mention of Star Wars. Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's happening. They're talking about Star Wars on TV, and they're like, no, no, this yeah. is something different. Same thing happened to me. I imagine like our parents' generation was incredibly fr- frustrated by that branding effort. Yeah. Uh, it's de- developing basically as enterprises try to take commercial advantage of outer space, right? Like, like uh, in our business, Robert and I are constantly reading press releases about what Elon Musk and other people are doing in terms of like sending commercial uh, ships up into outer space. But likewise, it would be really easy to disrupt the economic advantage of a nation by attacking its enterprises in space with things like lasers or particle beams or space planes, which has all been proposed in actual warfare here on Earth. This isn't science fiction. And remember, as we've talked about in previous episodes, we talked about it a lot in our Star Trek episode, uh, we are currently operating under the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. This is an international agreement that we won't put weapons of mass destruction in orbit, nor will we build military bases on celestial bodies like the moon. But it's vague enough in its language that the area that's just above Earth but not in outer space is accessible. Hmm. So how do you then – the other question too is how do you define what a weapon of mass destruction is when you're placing it up there in that that sliver? Right. If anything – like it doesn't – as we've, uh, we've presented here, it doesn't have to be a nuclear device. It can just right. be a – it can be the satellite itself. So it can be a bunch of telephone poles. Yeah. So Crawford and Baxter, they they sum it up like this. Here I have a couple of quotes uh, from the paper. They say, quote, the huge energies routinely deployed by a culture capable of interplanetary travel on a large scale would make war potentially hugely damaging. The kinetic energy of a Mars transport craft would be equivalent to a one megaton nuclear weapon or and presumably would be capable of inflicting great damage on a surface colony or a world like the moon or Mars. A craft capable of fast transport to the outer planets would acquire a kinetic energy comparable to a major nuclear war or to a significant asteroid strike that could inflict global damage. 
So the closer a civilization comes to that first rung of the Kardashev scale, the more technologically trivial extinction-level offense becomes. Uh, Crawford and Baxter uh, uh, tell us, quote, Our conclusion is that, he, is that human affairs in an extraterrestrial context cannot be conducted through warfare, which is more likely to destroy the contending cultures and perhaps extinguish mankind altogether uh, than to lead to any desirable political outcome. And their end argument is that before we start cruising around in space, we need to establish a political framework that guarantees colonial liberty without recourse to conflict. This is what really what it comes down to in almost all of these studies that we've talked about in this episode. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at war, whether it's how war was conducted, how it is conducted or how it might be conducted, the essential reason for it is what can we do to keep peace, to make sure that this doesn't result in the destruction of our species? So we've been talking about war. We've been talking about interplanetary war. Let's let's come back to the expanse and discuss just how the expanse stacks up to these various ideas and predictions and commentaries. I think by and large, based on, on what I've read and what I've seen on the show, I've, I've, I've gotten to see the, um, the premiere episode for season two and yeah. it's, uh, and it's really good. Uh, I think that, uh, the expanse uh, sticks to most of these ideas, uh, exceedingly well. Remember in the show that the Mars Earth conflict almost resulted in a war, but that Martian leap in technology, uh, with the Epstein drive, um, that ceased open hostilities. The resulting Cold War threatens to go hot again, but the more rational players in the game realize that such an open-armed conflict would likely prove catastrophic to both sides. There's even a conversation between two Martian characters in the premiere episode of uh, Season 2 that explores this very notion. Mm -hmm. And the Expanse also limits the conflict to our solar system, an, an acceptable realm of influence for one power, such as UN-governed Earth, uh, to play a major role in. Now, while the, the UN doesn't exercise such absolute power in the show, we can see where it conceivably could. Uh, but we can also see how crazy it would be to expect uh, them to control anything more than they already exert control over. Like they're already they've already lost Mars and are struggling to maintain the belters. Uh, you know, it's it's inconceivable that they would be able to control uh, anything beyond that. And on that note, we now are really lucky because we have an opportunity to talk to Noreen Shankar, who is the executive producer on The Expanse. He's one of the show's writers, and like I mentioned at the top, he is also a science advisor. He has a background in engineering and physics. So we're going to see what he thinks about these effects of war, and we're also going to take the opportunity to talk to him about how science is portrayed in The Expanse. Can you start by telling our audience about your science background before you got into the entertainment business? My understanding is you have a Ph.D. in engineering and physics. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I had kind of a weird trajectory coming into the entertainment business. I, I started at, at Cornell University as a as a liberal arts student. And a couple of years in, I, mean, I was I was studying like medieval studies and French literature and and a couple of years in, I, I decided to transfer into the engineering school, which most people transfer out of, um, because I, I was, you know, I'd always loved science and math, and and frankly, you know, the the, the job prospects of a medieval studies major were were somewhat um, limited, and <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> and so 
So I, I transferred into applied engineering physics at Cornell, and I actually stayed all the way through to, uh, through graduate school to get my, um, my PhD. And what started happening, though, as, as I was in the process of doing my dissertation, I started just taking tons of courses in history and literature again because I missed it. And I, and there was a moment when I was actually, I was leaving this amazing lecture in the, taking a great course in the history of American foreign policy. And I walked out of the hall and, and I, I was heading back to my lab. I was just like, man, I don't know if I can go back to this. And, you know, it's a, um, it it was just a weird circle for me. So I kind of came back to what I originally wanted to do. Okay. Um, but I finished my thesis, and um, when I was done, I almost got a job at Apple, which I would have probably taken. Um, and um, and I had a couple of friends who were out in in uh, Los Angeles uh, that I'd gone to college with, and they were breaking into the entertainment industry and always done a lot of creative writing, um, you know, through the years. And they said, "Come out to LA and be a screenwriter." And I said. Sounds great. And I just kind of threw some some suitcases in my car and I drove out to L.A. Well, I'm sure that all the research that you'd done, though, with history and especially medieval studies, it played into the screenwriting, right? Absolutely. And, and it's what's interesting is that people, you know, I, I tell the story to people and they go, boy, are you, were your parents upset that, you know, or were you, were you upset that, you, you know, you wasted your education? And I go, like, well, you know what, if you get educated properly, um, it's not a waste because it, it allows you to approach really complex projects like, you know, especially, you know, when you're a, a physical sciences major, really digest material, know how to do research. It's like all of those things come into play um, in, in, in what I do now. It's, it's, it's a complex business making a television show. And you're right. All of those things, the history and the literature, they inform everything that we always do. And um, so I think I sort of weirdly or just fortunately kind of landed in the, the thing that I'm suited for. Um, and so uh, it, it's a, it's a, it's a very enjoyable business for me. I get to exercise the the technical engineering side of my brain and then the purely creative side of my brain. So it's, it's, it's kind of a nice happy medium for me. Well, it definitely uh, shows in the expanse. I know that you've worked on a lot of, of television shows before this, but you were talking about those complex projects and it really seems like the expanse takes the realities of physics in space seriously for far more than most science fiction television shows. I think our audience would be interested into how your team treats those realities and, you know, how does the writer's room manage that? How much research goes into you guys choreographing scenes where ships or characters are, are operating in zero or low gravity? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, the, really the, the credit for that is, is it's baked into the books because, you know, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham, who are collectively James S.A. Corey, who wrote the Expanse novels, that was that was the approach that they took. They wanted to write something that that had, you know, at least approached the reality of what life would be like in space. And so they thought these things through extremely deeply. Um, I, I think what happened was when when I was brought in to run the show, it, it, part part of what attracted me to the project was that approach because 
you know, I, I, I worked on Star Trek The Next Generation. I've done plenty of science fiction over the years. You typically run away from things because they're too hard to produce or you think that or people think that they're boring or the shows are not really about spaceships and, and, and living in space. They're metaphors for other things. And so people apply, you know, I mean, like, let's just take Battlestar Galactic, for example, a show that I absolutely adore. I think it's a masterpiece. But the space, the way they use space in that show was classically World War II engagements in the Pacific. That's how the whole show is made. That's interesting because in the episode, we were talking about Star Wars as being very similar, that they use like it a World War II is. model. Absolutely yeah. is. I mean, I mean, Ron even, Ron Moore even, you know, he, he wanted that sort of newsreel footage realism and, and it was applied to, to, you know, extremely good effect in that show. But the show was about other things. And, and what, when I came to the experience, the thing that I thought would be interesting is embrace the concept of space as a character. Cause I hadn't seen that done before. Embrace zero gravity, embrace thrust gravity, embrace all of these things because it, it distinguished it from other, you know, other, uh, you know, attempts to do that sort of uh, other, other science fiction shows that just completely ignored it because they were too complicated to understand or too weird or too difficult to produce. Um, and, and I think it, it gave us, it, it has given the show a really unique quality and, and everybody seems to respond to it um, because it kind of feels real. You know, and it just and and we don't comment on it. It's not like a, it's not a, um, you know, it's not filled with jargon. It, but it feels like it, it's it's a more realistic depiction of the environment than people have typically seen. Um, you know, and with regard to how the writers treat it, I mean, like Ty Ty Frank and Daniel, they know a ton of science, and and, and Ty in particular has thought out the battles and the technology to an incredible extent. So he's, you know, those guys are our walking encyclopedias in the writer's room. Yeah. They're but, part of um, your writer's you know, room, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a very unusual thing as well. But you know, the rest of the writers, they're not about science. Mark, Mark Ferguson, Hawk Osby, who wrote, um, who wrote the pilot. Um, they're not, they're not science guys at all, but it, yeah, I feel like writing, putting together a writing staff is is like casting the show. You ha you find the right balance, and we have a, we had a very very unusual writers room. We had Robin Veit, who was on Mad Men for many years. We have Dan Nowak, who was on The Killing for many years. We have all these people who who have never done science fiction before, and um, and then there's Ty and Daniel who've written the novels, but they've never really worked in television before. And then there's me, and so that balance has I think hopefully pulled the best out of all of those people from those different different places and put it all into the show and made something I, I think is actually quite unusual and special. Yeah, we actually, in the episode itself, addressed this, just saying how much we like the show and that not only is it, you know, as, as people who do a show like ours, our podcast, is it, is it really interesting on a scientific level, but also ju that just like the, the craft of writing, of story, of plot, of character is all there and just really strong. Um, oh, and, cool. and for, for my part, I, I have to say, like, even though I do a podcast like this, 
uh, I always really enjoy this ship maneuvering, uh, because it's, it just seems like on an intuitive level, it's working the right way. Like I, there's something about it for me, the way that the, the ships are moving, it, it feels so real. And I, I, and it connects me to the, the Alex character a little bit more too. Like, Oh, look at what a great pilot this guy is. He's so casually just like steering this behemoth around, you know? Well, we have a, we have a great scene coming up in, uh, late in season two where we were, it's a, it's not in the books really, but it's, um, Alex is, is hiding behind a moon of Jupiter while the rest of the gang is on Ganymede station. And, and he has to get down to them, but there's patrols all over the place. So what he does is he plots a, a slingshot deorbital trajectory from where he is and just whips around a bunch of moons. Now it, it's super fun to look at when you actually, when you actually look at the distances involved and the time it would take to do it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> large distances and a ridiculously long time. So it could, it's like, you know, it would take him like, you know, six months. To get there. <laughs> but, but, but that doesn't quite work in a television show, but conceptually we're, we're totally on point. Um, so I, I, we, we've got a lot of, you know, we, we end up doing that a lot, but where it feels real, you know, and then I think that's, that is really the, the key test of any of these things where, you know what, there's a moment, there's a moment in, in the pilot where I wanted a particular shot. It was when, um, do you remember when the, the little, the little spaceship, the night that the guys took from the Canterbury, they, they go to find the derelict ship. Yeah. There's yeah, so we were looking at the visual effects of those, you know, and I was kind of and, and it was like it's kind of boring. And I said, you know what? Why don't we why don't we have that ship flip? You know, flipping in into like just that last bit of the deceleration burn, and and the engine plume kind of lights up the ship. That's that. There's and and it is so beautiful when you see these little maneuvering thrusters fire. These ships kind of turn slowly, and yeah, and then you know it's like. I find it very beautiful. I, I mean, all of the ship movements and all of that stuff is really, you know, we spend a lot of time, you know, talking about, you know, the specifics of how they're going to look, how the shots are going to be, you know, how we're going to convey scale and how we're going to deal with, you know, relative speed. That's like, and just how the camera needs to move. It's, it's, it's a whole, the whole thing is really, it's really fascinating. Um, you don't get into these conversations a lot in, in other shows. Yeah. Well, I think it, again, like I think it shows definitely and it's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm always impressed by it. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking back to the scene you're talking about too. And just like, it's like ballet in space with ships. That That's what it was. And, and it's really, it, you know, the, um, it's funny when you go back, like, you know, in the history of movies to, to, to look at shows that have treated this kind of stuff. Is you know the one guy who got it right was Kubrick in two thousand and one. We bring we we bring up two thousand and one in the episode as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's like well, and and yet the in popular culture, people remember like movies like you know Outlander, where where somebody's helmet you know gets pierced and their head explodes, which is <laughs> bull. And so so you know the, so we've actually. You know, anytime there's a moment that we can do this sort of stuff to sort of show real space, it, I, I try to take advantage of it. There was the moment on 
I think in episode six last season where the rock hoppers are out on the belt and the guy's having a problem with his helmet and he just flips open the visor and he breathes yeah. out and he like pulls a wire up and he closes it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can survive in a vacuum. These guys would, that, that's not a big deal for them. And it was just like, and I was talking in the room. I was like, and, and people were like, what? Don't their, <laughs> don't their head explode? He's like, no. But anyways, it's like, it, so things like that, I think, are the touches that are really, really fun. And um, I remember when I was first reading Leviathan Wake, the moment I realized I want to do this show is that scene in that compartment where Shed's head gets blown off. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, I was like, I've never seen that before. And that's that's pretty close to what's in the book, actually. Almost like sort of beat for beat. Now, speaking of the books and the various uh, scientific details, uh, and the authors do a terrific job of working all of these, not only the big scientific ideas, but the, just the casual science grounding and all the minor details and flourishes. Uh, like particularly, I think of the the moss whiskey, the the vat grown beans, and the various uh, workplace uh, perils that are encountered. Um, I, I can see where. Certainly, all the, having all these elements at your disposal are helpful in, in bringing the world to life on the screen. But is it ever? I mean, is it ever challenging? Do you have just all sorts of references that you wish you had time to fit in? Yeah, we we do actually, and we create so many more than you see. Sometimes it's like we would, you know, we built like you know ads that are playing on TV screens for vat grown beef and barbecues and and like all of this stuff and moss whiskey and you know we do as much as we possibly can. All of that stuff is there in the books. And so we try to pull it out as much as possible, because I think that those things give real texture to the environment. Um, and, and all of those details in aggregate, when, when you keep touching on them, when you don't comment on them, it just makes you feel like you're in a different place. It's like when Miller you know, kind of pours a little whiskey, but he's so used to Coriolis that he just kind of throws it at an angle and it just kind of drops into his glass in a, in a little spiral. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we never, we, you know, shows never do that. And it's an expensive little effect. And it's like, but to me, those are the touches that distinguish. And those are the things that really take the show to a different place. And people always notice. Now, uh, thematically speaking, um, uh, getting into into the books versus the the TV, uh, Leviathan Wakes published uh, almost seven years ago, and the the series we've seen. I mean, basically the the first season and the second season come out on on either side of a of a rather um, pivotal political election here in the United States. Uh, we're currently looking at so much international political change as well, so much tension and anxiety. Uh, what has it been like? to help manage the expression of this particular sci-fi vision during the midst of all of this? Well, you know, let's see. I, I, I'm trying to think when we started. When we started development of season one, I think, in 2014. So that was like, um, yeah, I think like April of 2014 is when we started. And and so, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the politics of it have been cooking underneath it ever since. Um I don't know if it was so much, you know, directly influenced it, but there's a theme in the books that we have been very conscious of since the very beginning, and that's about tribalization. And that certainly seems to be, you know, something that, that is extraordinarily relevant right now, is that 
this notion now the, the moment people start identifying another group of people as the other as defined by different beliefs or skin color or shape or size or whatever that that's when problems start happening all throughout human history when you can say we're like this they're not like us therefore we don't have to like them that's how wars begin and and it's definitely um a kind of a deep theme in the show because one of the one of the things that we've tried to do is you know we've kind of mixed people up um Ty and Daniel always said like you know the people who go out into space not just going to be you know caucasian you know cornfed nebraska boys from from the united states it's going to be indian and chinese and everybody and and the show has done that and yet the belters are identifying as different than birthers who are def- who are defining themselves as different from the Martians and the same kinds of problems are happening. So even though we've gotten out into space, we've colonized portions of the solar system. Once again, we're back at that place where human beings are tribalizing and seeing each other as different. And that way leads to conflict. Noreen, it's like you read our notes for the episode before we, we called you up here because we, <laughs> we literally mention othering in the episode as one of the main oh, really? causes of war. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, and, and the diversity in the show and, and showing that, you know, how colonization would work out is something we speak to as well. Um, our episode is, is focused on the concept of interplanetary war, and then we use the universe of the expanse as like a reference point. But in that universe, you know, I, uh, what are the causes leading humanity to these wars? You know, we, what we've seen so far, at least in season one, it seems to be mainly economic in nature, but, but like you were just talking about, it seems that there's also a theme here that human nature leads to war no matter where we are. I think the truth of the matter is it's both of those things that when they happen simultaneously, that's when starts to blow up. I mean, you know, human nature is human nature. You're always going to have it. But if you, you know, if you have bad feelings and bad, you know, ideas occurring in times of economic stress or deprivation or, you know, resource uh, constriction, that is a that is a recipe for disaster historically. And you can, you know, we have talked, we talk a lot about history in that room. Ty is like, he's got a, you know, he's got an encyclopedia knowledge of Roman history. We've also talked a lot about, you know, when I first sat down with, with the staff, I talked a lot about the guns of August, which is, which is Barbara Tuckman's book about um, the, the beginnings of world war one. And it was like this, these, you know, these little, dominoes that just kept knocking into each other, tiny events that led to a cataclysmic event. And we took that approach um, through season one and into season two is, you know, we're building to war. It hasn't quite come yet um, in the show, but it's coming. It's like all of these little things, misunderstandings, misapprehensions, information that doesn't get communicated properly or gets misinterpreted in an odd way that makes somebody look bad. That, I think that's how wars happen. Um, and, you know, all it takes is somebody 
pushing a button or pulling a trigger. Um, and, and so we've, we've adopted that concept in our storytelling. Well, it's, yeah, it's compelling for sure. Yeah, I guess just thanks, thanks once again for taking the time out of your day to chat with us and, uh, and for your work on, uh, and what has been a very, uh, entertaining and thought provoking science fiction television series. Well, thank you guys so much. It's really our pleasure. And, you know, we, we're, we, we love the show. Everybody involved in it loves the show. We want, you know, we're, we are just want people to get out there and see it. It was an interesting trajectory over season one that, you know, the, the, well, further it got along, and now we're on Amazon Prime and streaming, and we're on Netflix internationally. It's like people are discovering it now, and it's great to see that because you know it seems across the board people are really responding to it, and um, I think they're going to be blown away by season two. It's uh, it's it's got some amazing stuff coming down the pike. So let people know we're on the air February one. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. Uh, yeah, The Expanse is a really, really cool show, really cool book series. Uh, I highly recommend it. I think they play remarkably well with real science, with real cultural and political concerns in a way that entertains you but also keeps you thinking. Yeah, on top of, like, everything we've mentioned, it has great characters and the storytelling is smart. It's I, I, I binge-watched the first season with my wife in less than a week, and I'm very excited about the second season. And if you're, uh, if you find yourself though more concerned than entertained by uh, some of the more uh, uh, depressing subject matter in this episode, uh, I'd like to highlight a, a group that we've highlighted before, and that is the Arms Control Association. You'll find them at armscontrol.org. They're founded in 1971, and it's a national nonpartisan membership organization dedicated to promoting public understanding of and support for effective arms control policies. Through its public education and media programs and its magazine, Arms Control Today. They provide policymakers, the press, and the interested public with authoritative information, analysis, and commentary on arms control proposals, negotiations, and agreements, and related national security issues. So no matter what your level of interest, they have something for you. And you can donate at their website to help support their work to keep <laughs> keep nuclear war and, and war in general uh relegated as much as possible to the pages of history and fiction and science fiction. Yeah, it's certainly going to need to be the kind of group that we embrace before we go into space. And I didn't yeah. mean for that to rhyme, but we <laughs> we really need people to think about philosophical and political frameworks before we invent this technology because of what we've discovered in this episode. So all that said, we'd like to hear from you. Are you a fan of The Expanse? How did our uh, depiction of future warfare or the causes of warfare over the course of history line up with your notions? Let us know. I'm, I have a feeling that some of you are going to have strong opinions about this, especially after I read that Quora thread and I saw all of the various ideas mm -hmm. of how people are thinking already about what the possibilities of interplanetary warfare are. The places that you can reach out to us are Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. Or you could find us at stufftoblowyourmind.com. And you can always send us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 